It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. 17-14 at the final. One touchdown, we are world champions. Believe it, and it will happen. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. Thanks so much for tuning in with you for the next 60 minutes. He's Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow. The telephone number, option number one to interact with us here on the program, 201-939-4513. Option number two, you can find us on Twitter, hashtag Giants Chat. And as a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. We are inching closer and closer to the NFL draft. The festivities will get under underway next week and that means we still have a number of schools that we need to tackle and we've got two on the docket today we're going to concentrate on the state of Florida and right off the top we'll turn our attention to the Gators and to break down the class from Florida this year we are now joined by former NFL tight end who you can hear on ESPN Coastal 740 in Central Florida none other than Ben Troop. Ben, you got Lance Meadow and Paul Dottino here on Big Blue Kickoff Live, Giants.com. Greatly appreciate the time today. Hope all is well. How are things on your end? Uh, everything is good, but I appreciate you having me on, fellas. Well, it's a pleasure having you on the program, and let's delve right into it. Clearly, I think the prospect to watch coming out of Florida, Ben, this year is their cornerback, Kair Elam, who certainly has some good genes in the family, given what his uncle and his father did on the NFL level it seems as if there were some question marks, Ben, this season on his technique and whether or not he fell off a little bit. I know he was dealing with, I believe, a knee injury that limited him a little and it forced him to miss three games. What did you make of his performance this season in comparison to what he put on tape in previous years? I think uh, I think he was good, not great. I think well, when you talk about ideal size, he has. It. I mean, six two cornerbacks are a dime a dozen. When you think about guys like what Richard Sherman has meant to the to the cornerback position, cornerbacks are getting bigger and stronger, faster, like these uh, receivers are. But he kind of underwhelmed. Kyrie is a guy that I mean, six two with incredible ball skills. I mean, really, really shifted to be that tall. Was while he while he to me while he did play good, he could have played a lot better. Gave us some big t- two long touchdowns. Kind of sometimes get last a days ago because he's a good athlete. But I do agree. If you're looking for if you're looking for a guy that's, that's definitely going to be a better pro than he was a collegiate athlete, it's definitely going to be Kyrie. But you're going to have to he's going to have to be coached extremely hard because when you're that gifted, you got to have a you got to have a cornerbacks coach or a DB coach that's going to stay on him. You know, Ben, you talk about his skills and his tools. I mean, clearly amongst the best in the position coming out this year. However, I do want to ask you about his ability to go after the run. And occasionally he looks like he gets a little grabby, like a lot of college corners do. And when they get to the NFL, that's going to draw some flags. Yeah, the thing about the thing about his tackling, sometimes it's questionable because he takes really, really bad angles. I mean, if you're a cornerback, I know that most of the time when you're tackling guys, you got to make business decisions because your shoulders is how you make your money. But he's too big of a cornerback to not be coming up making for sure tackles. And when you think about that, that pulling, sometimes he plays to not get hurt. You can't play like that in the National Football League. I mean, I'm not comparing him to this guy, but I look at a guy like Antonio Camardi. To me, he's one of the most gifted cornerbacks I've ever seen. But when you look at the way he plays sometimes, it kind of made you scratch your head. I know he plays for the Jets and not the Giants, but I do think when I see Kair, they're going to want him to play how he looks, and sometimes he looks good, he just doesn't play as good. 
Don't worry, Ben. We don't discriminate on this program. You want to bring up players who wore all different uniforms? We have no problem. I mean, clearly, listen, you didn't play for the Giants. More than happy to have you on the program. So you don't have to apologize or worry about bringing up Antonio Cromartie. No issue there. As a piggyback off of your last point, another thing that I think we look at for cornerbacks when they make the jump to the NFL level is can they be as opportunistic as they were in college or maybe can they scratch the surface of something they didn't really tap into on the collegiate level? He had five interceptions in three seasons, certainly not a number that jumps off the page. What do you make of him not necessarily having a boatload of opportunistic plays, at least that shows up in the box score in his collegiate career? Some of it was just these uh, offensive coordinators respected him. They know they know how good of a player he could be. So sometimes you're not going to go with those number one cornerbacks because look, I want to make my I want to make my quarterback look good. But the thing about Kair, it's not like they strayed away from him. He had more opportunities to go out there and make plays. It goes back to you can't play to not make mistakes. And sometimes with Kair, he's so technical that he wants to do the right thing instead of trying to be opportunistic. To be a big time cornerback, got to have a short memory. You got to be able to be aggressive. Kind of like look. I like Diggs, you know, the way he plays, but I want a Jalen Ramsey type to where if you make a mistake, Jalen Ramsey going to make you pay. And I just think Kyrie sure. has that type of ability. But at the same time, it has it, most, of his, most of his game is in between the ears. If he gets that confidence to go along with his gifts and talents, he's going to be a big-time player really, really early. Ben, how much of this is simply a maturing issue that by the time he gets to the NFL, he will have grown and understand a little better about how to use his assertiveness and his confidence as opposed to maybe where he's at right now. I mean, uh, the one thing that Kyrie going to have to learn is the same thing I did. Uh, just when you get drafted, that makes you a pro. That don't make you a professional. The, the two things are very, very different. I mean, yeah, you making money, to, you making money to play football. You a pro, but you got to learn the pro game. That makes you a professional. Professionals, they know what to do. They go out there and get it done. They don't make excuses. It doesn't matter what the situation is. Put me in the situation. And as a quarterback now, they got to look at themselves as really, you know, outside the quarterback, the best players on the team because these guys are really, really high profile now. I like Kyrie Elam because he seems to be a, a team, a team oriented player. But if he goes to a place like the Giants, look, man, sometimes where you play has a lot to do with how you play. You go to a big market like that to where everything you do matters, I think it'll help him grow up really, really fast. Ben, on a related note in terms of where you end up, because I think that's a great point in terms of the market, but also the scheme that you end up also is going to dictate your level of success. As far as his fit is concerned, whether you ask him to play press man, whether or not you ask him to play in zone, what do you think his strengths are, his weaknesses, his concerns as he does make the jump to the NFL level? He is a press corner. He's one of those guys to where he plays better when he's right in front of uh, right in front of those receivers. He's not really an off uh, you know off uh, man type guy. Kyrie Elam to me is needs to be he needs to be on the number one receiver. He needs to be in their face and he kind of kind of let him do his thing. Don't worry so much about the scheme. I'm gonna put you on this guy in front of you and I want you to take him away because sometimes he gets to worrying too much about the defense. I mean, listen, I think he's built to be in the NFC East. I mean, you look at you look at what the NFC East does when he, you, he got big time receivers weekend. A week out, that's just inside the division. I think he's built to play that because I think now, if I'm going to get a cornerback, top 60 pick, I don't want to be worrying about can he walk out of college years or walk, walk in to be a be a starter. I need Kyrie Elam to come in as a seasoned pro because guys, guys nowadays that, that don't got as good a skill set as his are still making big plays. I think Kyrie put him in the right scheme. That press man, I think he'll be just fine. 
Van, it is a deep running back class, and Damian Pierce is certainly going to get some attention in this draft. I know his clocking at 4.59 was a bit slow for some folks, and maybe he doesn't have the greatest burst or quickness, but when I look at him, I see his balance, I see his yards after contact, I see patience and vision, but what I really love, I see hands and pass protection. This guy's going to make somebody happy, at least at very minimal third down back. What do you think? Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. He's a complimentary piece. The one thing that the University of Florida didn't put him in a position to do, which I don't think he's built to do, is be the main guy. I don't think he's built to be just a bell cow type running back, which you don't have to worry about that now in the National Football League when I'm doing it by committee. But the thing you mentioned, Damian Pierce can catch the ball out of the backfield. You saw what he did in the senior bowl. We out there blocking in front of NFL coaches. He's a great teammate. I think the one thing that people – you know, don't understand a lot of time is to adjust to the NFL coach. What type of teammate are you? What type of football player are you? And he's going to be the type of guy to wear. Listen, Florida reason may he rest in peace. Uh, the GM that drafted me in uh, 2004, he told me, Ben, we drafted you because we didn't have to worry about you when, we, when you weren't in our presence. You ain't going to have to worry about Damien. The guy doesn't get in trouble. He understands the task at hand. And look, if, you, if it's third and one, third and two, he's definitely complimentary back. I think he's going to make an NFL franchise very happy. And for a guy that, to your point, wasn't used an awful lot, I mean, you could argue he probably could have had even more carries. It's amazing. He averaged a touchdown every seven touches this past season. So he certainly made the most of his opportunity. Now, staying on the running back position topic, Malik Davis is another one of their backs, and I'm assuming that's why, obviously, they didn't have Pierce take on the entire workload. But the question with him has been injuries. He suffered season-ending injuries in 2017 and 2018. How much of a durability concern? Ben, do you think there is with respect to Malik Davis? It's huge. It's huge. If most of the time, I mean, you have to get over the injury bug. You hope it happens when you're in the National Football League, not before. Malik has, Malik has shown a, a level of perseverance that you definitely want to be able to have when you're talking about drafting a player. But the injury concerns is a big concern. I mean, if you can't find a way to make it through a workload, when your body is at its youngest, I mean, when you're going through college, man, you can get over injuries that most guys wouldn't even deal with as they get older. He's already dealing with it as a young guy, and you know how brutal it is adding a 17th game to an NFL regular season. It's going to be can his body hold up and if he can he's going to be able to make a team on special team before he can actually get out there and contribute on offense I see one other guy who really intrigues me as potentially a, a, a middle round draft pick that's Zachary Carter uh, who was a redshirt senior listed him as defensive end but you know what I'll tell you something Ben you tell me about this I think he's better off as a three technique defensive tackle in the National Football League I think if he cleans up his technique and he gets stronger he could be really functional in that role he really, really could. The thing about Zachary Carter, a guy that only got better year in and year out, is the time at Florida went through, you know, different coaches and understanding what it's going to take to be a, a key contributor. He's going to, if he's going to be, you know, if he's going to be a three-four, he's going to have to get bigger because I think, I think Aaron Donald got everybody thinking you could be two eighty-five. We. He's the best defensive player in the league. I think Zachary's going to have to get over 300 pounds because he's going to have to be able to deal with double teams, and he's going to have to be more polished in the run game and work on more pass rushing. But, yeah, Zachary Carter is a guy that he is what college football is. I get better year in and year out. And while, and while the wins didn't actually show what he was doing individually, I think what he, what he brought to the team collectively is definitely going to be big time, and hopefully uh, NFL team will see that. We're talking with Ben Troop, former NFL tight end. You can hear him on ESPN Coastal 740 in Central Florida. Two other guys that I want to throw out there, Ben, one on each side of the ball who are projected that possibly they could be drafted, maybe undrafted free agents, but you got linebacker Jeremiah Moon, 
who also dealt with his fair share of injuries during the course of his career, similar to how we were talking about Malik Davis. And then on the offensive line, Gene DeLance, who seems to have been a solid presence at right tackle for each of the last three seasons. What do you see upside-wise out of each of those two guys? Jeremiah Moon are starting out. I think he has a really, really good motor. I mean, had a chance to really like talk to Jeremiah Moon when I was at Florida a couple of years back. I mean, once again, he's going to have to be a guy. He's going to have to play better than what his talent actually is, which I think he can. And I, I think when you look at what uh, all they want to do with these defensive ends slash outside linebackers, it, it, he. Can he, can he work with his pass rush? Then he got to drop back in coverage. I mean, the more you can do, it's going to help him uh, get on the field. But I do think uh, he's going to be a nice addition. And just like I said about, you know, a guy like Malik Davis and those guys, if he can find a way to make the team on special teams, he'll be able to show what he can do on the defensive, on the defensive line. As far as, like, uh, you know, Juan DeLance, I mean, I couldn't agree more. When you talk, think about what Florida has been able to do as of late, they weren't running the football uh, when Dan Muller first got there. When you, by the time he left, even though they moved on to Billy Napier, I think DeLance is a guy that's, you know, a big guy. You know, a lot, a lot of girth. I think he's going to be able to go out there and really help uh, a right tackle. The right tackle position ain't where the left tackle is, but I do think if he can get it to a camp, show that he can help with those, got to deal with those elite pass rushes, I think he'll be a great addition. I got one more guy I got to ask you about on that old line, and I know you know where I'm going here, Ben. Stuart Reese, 6'5", 350, came out of Mississippi State before he came over here to Florida. Uh, it just seems to me, if you put him in a phone booth, all right, you stick him there at guard, in a phone booth, and you don't ask him to do anything athletic or play in space or play off the edge, just with that size and frame, he could probably give something to somebody. Absolutely. Now the thing about being six six three fifty, that you mean that's a king size man walking around, and you put him, <laughs> you put you put you put him, you put him inside. He's gonna have to play. He's gonna have to learn to play uh, lower than what he actually is. Everybody, listen, outside of what Chris Jones of Kansas City, ain't nobody, ain't listen, ain't no Chris Kansas of the way, ain't no more six five six six defensive uh, defensive tackles. But if you put him in that phone booth, I think he's a guy that can definitely help a squad. I think the thing you know about Stu, I mean uh, Stuart Reese is he's gonna have to learn to play how he looks. I, I you. You're going to hear me say it a lot. If I look a certain way, I can't go out there and be getting dominated. There are certain times in the game he didn't. He, he was getting dominated by lesser talent and smaller guys. Put him at tackle. Put him in the right scheme. Teach him how to play nasty and play mean. Oh, he can, he can have a 10-year career. Ben, before we let you go, is there anyone else that jumped out to you coming out of Florida that could make a name for himself? Or do you think we pretty much covered all aspects of their team at this point? I mean, I, I mean, I think. I mean, listen. I mean, the, the fact that you guys are pulling out guys like Malik Davis, I think I showed that you guys are definitely doing your due diligence. I think you guys did an incredible job of making sure that Florida having a down year, you would say, can they still have some big time prospects? I know everybody's going to Athens these days. I know they got thirty guys, and I know the Giants love some Georgia Bulldogs, which is fine <laughs> with me. But I just, I just, I just think that at the end of the day, I just think at the end of the day, when you think about. When you think about what the Kai Elam does, what the Zachary Carter does, what the Stuart Reese does, what the Malik Davis, the Damian Pierce, the Jeremiah Moon, you're getting quality football players. And I think too often at times we focus on the intangibles like the height, the weight. What type of person are you dealing with? Because nowadays with the, with the presence of social media, I don't want nobody embarrassing. That listen, the twenty some hours away you are away from these facilities, I need to make sure that you're going uh, that you're going to be an upstanding uh, young man. I think all these guys are going to be really good. Well, and especially when you invest a high draft pick at a player like that. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I I got a couple of more names, and I think they fall under the category of they need to play how they look. And I think you'll get what I'm saying here, Ben, because when I looked at uh, Daquan Newkirk and Tyrone Truesdell, these are two defensive linemen who are both over 6'2". Truesdell's at 350. Newkirk is at 330. Both of these guys came as transfers out of Auburn. 
And and to be honest with you, Ben, when I looked at the tape, I was disappointed that you, like you said to me a, a few moments ago, they don't play how they look. If somebody can hit the switch on both of these guys, their frame is going to be sought after by somebody who's looking at the tape, and they're going to say, if I can get it out of them, these guys are going to be able to play. Yeah, and, and and they're gonna have to answer those questions. I mean, you come from a place like Auburn, you come over to Florida, you you coming from the SEC West to the SEC East, you want to be able to show. Look, I still got some left in the tank. If you got all this girth and you and you guys that can definitely play football from where you started out and where you ended up at, sometimes they putting on the table and they ask you what happened this play. It's about being honest with what you see on tape. It's about being honest with yourself. It's about really buying into the scheme and really asking yourself, do I want to play football to make money or do I want to make a career out of it? They decide I want to do this for a career. These guys can end up being much better pros than they were in college. And I don't want a guy to peak in college, by the way. I, I want a guy to show flashes in college and put it all on tape when he gets to the pros. I think New Kirk and Trues, there are two guys that could definitely do that. He is Ben Troop, former NFL tight end. You can hear him on ESPN Coastal 740 in Central Florida. Ben, can't thank you enough. Greatly appreciate the time and the insight. Look forward to talking down the road. Appreciate it, Ben. Appreciate it, fellas. Appreciate it. it. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Ben Troop with us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live, breaking down the Florida Gators. We will turn our attention to Florida State, the Seminoles, in a little bit as we move forward here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. You can also use hashtag Giants Chat on Twitter. In addition to obviously getting prepared for the NFL Draft next week, the Giants are continuing their offseason activities. They're going to have a voluntary mini camp that gets underway tomorrow. And voluntary, obviously, is the key operating phrase. We're not yet in the mandated portion of the offseason program. But Brian Dable, compared to other teams, had a little bit of an edge. When you're a new coach, you get to start the offseason program a little bit sooner. And clearly trying to take advantage of also getting the guys back in the building and somewhat of a similar setup pre-pandemic compared to what Joe Judge and company had to deal with. Yeah, things really look pretty darn close to normal right now, Lance. And it's, you know, come on now. We went through two years of this thing. Uh, and so uh, you can't even put a value on what normalcy is. And, and I know we've all gone through it. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Everybody in one way, shape, or form has had to adjust their lives because of this thing. But at this point, the National Football League is trying its best to be as close to normal as possible. What we don't know is how is it going to shake out over the next few months? And will we really have everything normal during the regular season? Uh, we do expect that when we talk to uh, GM Joe Shane on uh, Wednesday, uh, and when we talk to some of the players on Wednesday, we're told that those will be in person. They will not be Zoom video interviews anymore. So that's a good thing. Whether or not they're going to be at distance with the podium or we're going to be able to actually get close to these guys, I'm still not sure. But uh, certainly we're moving in the right direction. And I would assume that it probably would be at the podium because there was that presence and that feel last season. It wasn't necessarily everything Zoom-based. There was much more in presence last season. But to your point, nobody has a crystal ball. And how things appear in April, you just don't know what things are going to look like in July, August, or September. Everything's fluid. So I think any NFL rules that are implemented or tweaked I think what everybody needs to understand is the way that it operates one month may not be identical to what happens during the season because the NFL is going to monitor things based on how the country is handling the situation. If they have to make adjustments along the way, they'll make adjustments. If everything is status quo, then they'll leave the changes implemented. I think everybody just needs to remain flexible, at least in that department. 
no question. And I think really that's what the commissioner's message has been to all the teams because, you know, I've, I've had conversation with some of the people on the Giants staff here up in the front office, and they've said to me, you know, we really don't know exactly how it's going to shake down. We've got to wait for the NFL to give us their parameters, and they're not going to give them out now because they sure. might have to change. They're yeah. going to wait as long as they possibly can before they establish how they're going to have procedure and then the teams will discuss, okay, that's fine with us, or will they take it to another level? Uh, these things are all to be determined. And remember, also, the players have a say, too, because the union is going to have to get involved and they're going to have to agree to any tweaks with respect to the regulations because they had basically suspended the protocols once the offseason started. So now that the players are going to return to the facilities, they're going to test the waters out and see what exactly is working or what may need to be changed as they move forward entering the start of training camp. We'll try to squeeze in a phone call or two before we have our next guest and start to break down the Florida State Seminoles class for the 2022 draft. But you can give us a ring at 201-939-4513. Let's open up the lines. We check in with Cliff, who is in New York. Cliff, what do you have for us? How you doing, guys? Thanks for taking the call. Hi. I, I um, got a question about where we stand with the offensive line right now with the free agent pickups that Joe Shane made. Um, I, I wonder if we already have, uh, if you think we might just already have the, the basic functioning picket fence. Um, and in particular, I think there might be a sleeper. Uh, of all the guys that we had last year, the much maligned offensive line, there's a couple of guys that are coming back because um, they were already under contract and their contract wasn't up. But there's another guy that we re-signed, and I, I wonder if uh, I might be reading too much into that, but I'm wondering what you think of Corey Cunningham, because he was the only one that we brought back, and they, they you know, I'm, I'm wondering if he can be the right tackle. I think well, you're I'm, reaching. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I have sorry? to understand. Here's the thing, Cliff. Wasn't there an opportunity last season for just about anybody to grab a starting job? Couldn't you argue that? Based on all their injuries and all their issues. Right, golden opportunity for anybody that was on the back end of the depth chart to come in and prove to the coaching staff, hey, put me in. And that didn't necessarily happen. And I think one of the reasons why you bring back some guys like a Corey Cunningham is you need depth. You need to protect yourself from injury, and you need sort of a swing guy. So I think he fits that bill, but I don't know. I think you're reading way too much into it in terms of him having a legitimate shot to push for a consistent starting job look uh, coach Brian Dable pretty much admitted at the combine to the writers when they talked to him about it and I think it was there where they addressed it and he pretty much agreed that the team needs a starting right tackle so that kind of tells you right there the writing's on the wall for what they're trying to do with the position to me Cunningham is simply another guy you bring back for practice squad purposes because you look we've talked about this before you're going to need nine offensive linemen in all likelihood on your active 53 Okay, then on top of that, you're going to need another four or five that are going to be on your practice squad. And that's assuming that nobody gets hurt. And so, you know, if you're the Giants and you've already got a bunch of offensive linemen that are on their way out the door, you got to keep a couple of live breathing bodies inside just for, for lack of numbers. Well, and also, Paul, let's not forget, Nick Gates and Matt Paird are question marks in terms of availability no doubt. for the beginning of the season or for the entire season. Well, so, so Shane Lemieux, I mean, yeah. we think he's on track, but sure. until he gets out there and does it, 
We don't know for sure. So you could throw the three of them in there. So if you do the math and you're factoring any of those guys into your nine, let's say, that potentially can make the roster, you know, that's going to open up the door for potentially other guys to move up because there's no guarantee they're going to actually be on the 53 at the start of the season. Look, based on resumes, if the caller is thinking about somebody who's here who could potentially be higher on the right tackle depth chart, you've got to look at Matt Gono who was tendered a second-round draft pick of uh, number by the Atlanta Falcons and then wound up getting hurt and was lost for the season. But clearly they valued him as a potential starter or they wouldn't have given him a second-round tender. Now, he's here with the Giants. We don't know exactly where he is in terms of how his conditioning and his shape is, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think he probably has a real shot to be the third tackle. I think Matt Parrott depending upon how his rehab is going, certainly has a shot to compete as a starter. But it's pretty clear the Giants are going to bring somebody else in. And if that draft pick is in the the top 10, he'd like to believe that that guy's going to be good enough to start week one. Yeah, or at least has a legitimate good shot to do that. The other thing is Corey Cunningham's only started six games in his career too, Cliff. So, I mean, let's not overlook the fact. And he's been in the league for at least a few years at this point. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, and, and then I'll, I'll let you answer off the air, um, uh, also at the Combine is when Joe Shane said he's lining up seven favorites. And then he also said uh, maybe there will be 12 or 13, and that changes things. If you could explain what that means, I, I'd appreciate it. Are you referring to the offensive line, though, just for clarification? No, no, no. I, I didn't... no. No, no, the uh, overall he was uh, he was talking about how he's approaching the draft and he's got he's lining up his top 7 choices from the draft and if it turns out that there's 12 or 13 then that changes things and that I wasn't sure what that meant. All right, well we'll let you go on that note. I mean, I don't remember Paul exactly hearing that quote in terms of where it came from or whether or not that context is correct, but my interpretation would be well the more guys you have as you're making selections, I think it gives you flexibility to maybe consider trading out of that spot if you feel that there's more guys that are higher on your board and maybe you could get additional resources. So that's how I would interpret it. It changes things if you have higher volume. And why should you limit? If you have seven guys, the better you have to consider multiple options as opposed to just having your heart set on one or two guys and then they're not even on the board by the time you make a selection. You know what, Lance? We're in agreement that if you have two guys you are convinced about, you've got to make those picks. As we get closer and closer to the draft, I'm more convinced that the Giants will probably deal out of one of those picks and get a first-rounder next year in a package. Uh, I, I sense that that is more and more the direction of the way the wind is blowing. Personally, uh, I'd like to believe that If they had conviction in two guys, they would just take the two guys. You and I have been talking about this for months. Um, You know, this this goes back to do you like vanilla ice cream or do you like chocolate? There's really no right or wrong answer because you can make a logical case for either action, taking the picks or trading one of them in a deal with next year's first rounder. Uh, I sense that the trade is becoming more and more stronger in the wind I personally would not go that way. But if they do, there's certainly rationale behind it, and you couldn't complain. Well, and also, just to use that quotation that the caller brought up, 12-13, let's say, is the number of the amount of players that you like. 
then it all depends on how far you're willing to move down mm-hmm. because there's a point where 12 to 13 all of a sudden dries up and you don't have now access to any of those guys that you may have highly rated. So that's another part of the equation. You may go in saying, hey, we really like 13 guys. But then all of a sudden, a team comes calling that wants to move up to seven, let's say, hypothetically speaking, but they pick 21. Well, how good do you feel about getting a guy at 21? What does your board look? You know what, though, Lance? I don't think that's as big of a factor in their logic as getting next year's number one is to hedge their bet on Daniel Jones. I think the hedge that that either Jones will not get through the season healthy or could potentially not live up to their expectations. Getting that next year's extra number one, I think, is more the carrot than where they could potentially land by moving down in a deal this year. Look, if they if they were to move out of five or seven, they'll get a cluster of picks, probably three or four total draft choices, okay? It's my belief that next year's number one has to be part of that deal because they're not necessarily interested in taking three or four picks in this year's draft. They're not going to want, you know, two extra ones at the bottom of the first round. They're not going to want a two and a three this year. No, if they do it, they're doing it to compile future stuff. And and that tells you they're protecting themselves against Jones getting hurt or Jones not living up to his billing. And, and, and that's why it makes sense if they do it. I'm not exactly, you know, in that camp, but I understand it. And I do think the winds are stronger in that direction today than they ever have been before. And I completely understand that logic, too. But remember, even if you get the additional first-round pick, a lot depends on the team that you got it from and how they fare, right, the upcoming season. Just because you get a first-round pick, Paul, doesn't mean it's guaranteed to be a high pick. But it does give you an additional resource if you wanted to, let's say, combine your first-rounder and another first-rounder. Maybe that helps you move up Well, that's why if position they, yourself. That's why if they're going to get three or four... Uh, uh, picks in, in making a move, you make sure that the bulk of that value that you're getting back is in next year's draft. Let's say you get an extra two or in a three next year. Well, now it doesn't matter how low that first rounder is because you're going to be able to compile extra twos and threes that you'll be able to move up in. I understand it. I totally understand it. I don't know that I would go that way, but I get it. And also, it depends on, once again, finding a match with the team that you're negotiating that is willing to then give up those additional resources in next year's draft. Because some of the trades we've seen transpire so far this year have also involved maybe second and third round picks from this year as opposed to next year, too. But I understand the logic behind, once again, wanting more resources for next year that you can combine in some type of a trade. All right, we'll get more into this as we move forward on Big Blue Kickoff Live. In the meantime, let's turn our attention back to certain classes of prospects. We focused on Florida earlier in the program, and now we're going to focus on Florida State. And to break down the Seminoles class, we're now joined by Tom Block, who is a radio host and sideline reporter for Florida State, and he joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Tom, you got Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino, Giants.com. Greatly appreciate the time today. Hope all is well. How are things on your end? Things are good. Things are good. I hope the same is true on your end. It is indeed. And thanks so much for once again joining us here on the program. Let's start with Florida State's top prospect without question. It's clearly their pass rusher, Jermaine Johnson. I think a lot of people tend to forget, though, 
that the sample size at Florida State is relatively small because he was at Independence Community College in Kansas, then he went to Georgia, and then he transferred again to obviously get more of an opportunity and playing time at Florida State. So even though it's a relatively small sample size, how much do you think he quieted some of the skeptics because of the amount of production that he was able to put forth in his limited time at Florida State? From where I sit, I don't think anybody associated with FSU could have imagined that he would be as good as he was. And I mean that across the board, both as what he did during games, but also what he did uh, in terms of being a leader as a new guy who came to town. I mean, he really he was in Tallahassee and affiliated with FSU for, what, 10 or 11 months probably after, after transferring from Georgia. Uh, it's a Florida State team that, that as you know, is, is trying to rebuild. Uh, and so he came to, to, to make himself and mold himself into a better draft prospect, and I think he certainly did that. I know he interviewed well. I know he tested well at the Combine. And in terms of how he impacted games for Florida State, uh, he, he, is, he is remembered already among FSU fans. I'm not going to say an all-time great, but he, he is going to be remembered very favorably, especially for a guy that was here less than one year. I mean, people talk about him as if he was a three- or four-year starter. He had that kind of impact on the program. Uh, to me, really, uh, he's going to make somebody very happy at the next level. Tom, I don't think there's any question about his ability. I'm I'm trying to fight with myself as to figure out where the best fit for him is when he gets to the NFL because I did think he was a tad slow off the snap. He didn't have the quickest get-off, but he's got everything else for sure. The toolbox is ridiculous. Um, but at 6'4", 255, the question becomes – do you want him standing up or down in the dirt? Because he did a little bit of both, obviously more in the dirt, but he did some stand-up at FSU. We've seen him on the left. We've seen him on the right. When he gets to this league, where would you recommend the NFL guys play him, given that the tackles in this game up here are stronger, they're bigger, they're quicker with their feet? What would you do with him? Would you want him in a 3-4? Would you want him in a 4-3? Would you want him up? Would you want him down? Again, I understand the toolbox is full, but where would you see him best fit? To me, his best fit is down. You make a good point, and I'll go back. Boy, this is going to show my age because it might have been the 97 draft, 98, somewhere in the mid-90s, but Reynard Wilson was a really good defensive end at FSU that played at the same time Peter Bolware was at FSU. So they were the defensive end. And Bolware, you know, Bolware's a guy who's more in line with with what Jermaine Johnson is in mm-hmm. terms of frame size. But but the Bengal and, and you know Bolware went on and won a Super Bowl with the Ravens. Sure. Uh, Reynard yeah. Wilson was drafted with the Bengals and they tried to make him an outside linebacker and he had never stood up at all and it just it, it didn't materialize for him. Uh, because it just wasn't, uh, it just wasn't, you know, in his skill set really. Now I will say, thinking this through a little bit further, that that Jermaine and uh, and I just saw people were at FSU spring game, and Pete, by the way, weighs less than me now, which doesn't say a lot, right? It says a lot for him, <laughs> not for me. But <laughs> but um, you know, thinking about it, he's pretty comparable size, or Jermaine is pretty comparable size and frame there. You know, six four, two fifty ish. Are you putting more weight on? Are you taking some weight off? Uh, and I think Jermaine probably is athletic enough to stand him up. Now, you'd have to get the coaches who are experts, and they've run him through the drills to really figure out, you know, are his hips what they want? Is is he suited to do this? 
Uh, I mean, my initial answer was I like him better down, but that's because that's what I saw him do all last year, and he was a game changer. He affected the game. You guys know more about the what the tackles look like at the NFL level and whether or not you know he, he's he's not quite adept enough to really be a star at the next level uh, if, if he is in a four three. With respect to the bag of tricks that Paul was referencing, to me, what jumps out when you watch him on film and even what he did during the course of senior bowl practices where he really, I think, further made a name for himself, Tom, is his spin move. He's got, it seems, a spin move that if it's clicking, good luck trying to stop him. What about the spin move did you find to be so effective? And, and what else about perhaps his arsenal of moves could make him very effective on the NFL stage? Well, I, I mean, I think it's just what you said. The spin move is is incredible. I mean, he used it, uh, you know, to quite a bit of success last year. Uh, you know, I'm just thinking of a couple of games. So Florida State's not in the same weight class as Clemson right now. And yet when they went up to Clemson last year, he had a strip sack that he recovered for a touchdown, and it gave FSU the lead in that game with maybe three and a half minutes left at Death Valley. I mean, now they didn't hold it, but – you're talking about a guy that single-handedly almost won a game at Clemson. Then in the Miami game, which Miami was the favorite, it was in Tallahassee, Florida State wound up holding on and winning that game or coming from behind to win that game in the end, as it turned out. But he had three sacks in that game. He forced a turnover on the spin move deep in Miami territory. Florida State took over and cashed it in for seven. That was probably at the 18-yard line, something like that. Uh, really good spin move. The other thing, and I don't know, this sounds like you put it in the bucket of intangibles, but when I say relentless motor, uh, again, going back to the Miami game, there was a crucial third down play late in that game. Florida State needed to stop to get the ball back. He was at left defensive end, and he winds up running all the way across the field to nail the ball carrier from the side about a yard shy of picking up the first down. So, uh, you know, and at this point, that was game, what, 10 in the year, something like that. He already had enough uh, film. To, to, to show what he could do at the next level. But he was still playing that hard for a team that was not going to a bowl game, not a team that's in contention for the, for the college football playoffs. So that impressed me. At a time when you see guys, especially nowadays, that might just mail it in, I never saw him mail it in. I mean, he was wire-to-wire -wire relentless from opening kick until the, the clock hit zero. So, Tom, from the time that the season ended till now, as we close in on the draft, it just seems as though because of maybe what he was able to do with the workouts, his arrow is going straight up. From maybe what I seem to remember was a consensus middle of the first rounder to now people talking about top ten, maybe top five. So, so all of a sudden, he's picking up a lot of steam and acceleration here on the draft board. Why do you think that is? If the tape was so good from the beginning all the way through the season, is it simply people are enamored with, with the shorts and shirts workout? Or are they finding out more about him in terms of off-the-field stuff where his interviews and his background checks and they're finding out more and more about him that makes them like him as, a, as an intangible guy, not just someone who has a toolbox? Yeah, I think it's I think it's probably the latter. I think part of the reason, and you said mid first to the upper first. I mean, at the start of the year, when 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 he transferred to Florida State last year, FSU knew they were getting a good player uh, because he was coming from the University of Georgia. And even though he wasn't a starter there, if you looked at his snap count relative to the numbers he put up, he had produced. 
He just wanted more of an opportunity. But I don't think anybody thought when Florida State kicked off the season last year that, oh, this is a mid-first-round draft pick FSU has a defensive end. Uh, you know, I thought probably the thinking was he was a second-day draft pick. And then as the year went on, they said, oh, maybe he could move into the first round. And then the year ends and you're looking middle of the first round. I do think it's the intangibles. I also think part of that, now this, maybe maybe not for your, your guys who really follow the draft and are doing their homework every day all year long, but FSU not being in the conversation, they finished five and seven last year. They're not a they're not a team that was leading Sports Center with the highlights. It wasn't like sure. you know a guy for Alabama where they're here's what this guy did this week. You know, FSU's not even making the highlights a lot of times right now. So I think as people started to look at the tape once the season ended, and then they they looked at the stats, and then they started asking around. Well, what about this guy? He was at junior college, then he was at Georgia, uh, and then you sit down and interview him. And if you had any stereotypes about what that kind of journey might uh, equate to, I, I think those those fear, if you thought that it was because he just was a, a misfit or was you know had academic issues or whatever, I don't think that was the case. I mean, you know, uh, legitimate guy that that grew up on the field uh, and and really interviewed well, and, and people found that out since the time the season finished. We're talking with Tom Block, Florida State radio host and sideline reporter. Tom, I want to piggyback off of something you brought up in your previous answer when you mentioned the individual performances for Jermaine Johnson and one game in which he was on the left side, ran all the way to the right to make a stop because when we talk about pass rushers, we do get caught up in sacks and quarterback hurries and so forth. What about his effectiveness consistently in helping with the run defense and stopping the run? What jumped out to you with respect to that facet of his game? That he was disciplined. Uh, you know, a lot of times at the college level, it, not everybody does a great job of setting the edge, you know, especially guys who haven't had a lot of repetition. So they might make an all-star play, and then you don't realize, unless you're really looking at the tape, that, you know, the next three plays, they just didn't set the edge, edge and that's why the offense turned the corner on you, you know. Um, so to me, he was disciplined. He was where he was supposed to be. He led by example. Uh, and I think he was he was solid in that department, too. I mean, if you look at him in terms of tackles, he was second on the team in tackles last year with 70 uh, behind a behind a strong safety, you know, who finished everything up that got downfield. So uh, it wasn't like he was eighth or ninth. He played a lot of snaps, but he didn't take snaps off when he was out there. You know, I mean, they, they he squeezed every drop out of it that, as far as I can tell. So then even though it's only one year as a full-time starter, you're you're saying that you think the the realistic expectation is – Let's say if the Giants wanted to think about him at five or seven, that's ballpark for him. You don't think that's a reach? I now I'm gonna. I don't want to plead the fifth on this, but I will <laughs> say that I don't. I don't. I mean, when you talk about value, there it really depends on what the Giants have on their board and how they've ranked everybody else. To me, this guy is a definite first round pick. Uh, if you're playing poker, could you could you drop down and get them a little bit lower? I don't know enough. I'm not following the NFL draft closely enough to know that. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying as I listen to myself talk is maybe five or seven feels a little bit high. But I think if you get him between 10 and 20, you're not going to argue and you're going to be happy with it. And that's mm -hmm. not to say that if you got him at five or seven, he might not wind up being every bit as good. That, that's more about what's the value and who else is on the board and what are other teams going to take and how that whole game is played, and, and I'm not studying that closely enough to know on that front. Tom, there's one other guy in that defensive line I'm curious about, and that's Thomas. 
listed him at 6'2", 270 or so, six and a half sacks, 12 uh, tackles for a loss. After five seasons at South Carolina, comes over to the Seminoles, and, and he just looks the part of what could be a, a three technique in the NFL. Would like to see him get stronger for sure, but gets off at the snap well. He's got a motor. He's got really good hand skills in terms of fighting the, the linemen for blocks. I, I, think, I think they could do something with him in this league. I think, I think he's got a chance, too, and I'm glad you brought him up because there was so much focus on Jermaine Johnson. Where we are from a Florida State standpoint right now is, uh, you know, again, FSU was an average football team last year, and they lost both their starting defensive ends, who both are NFL prospects and put up really good numbers. Now the question is, how much did Keir benefit from teams uh, really focusing on Jermaine on the, on the other end? And, and obviously there's some of that. But it was noticeable when Thomas wasn't in there. I mean, he didn't have anything major, but there were times where he was nicked and missed a few series or something like that. I don't know that he missed a game, but if he came out, you could tell because Florida State's depth wasn't where they needed it to be. But I I think he's a good football player, too. Now, he's older because of the time he spent at South Carolina. I don't know if he's older than Jermaine, but, I mean, he's you know these aren't guys that are just three years removed from high school. Uh, Yeah, you said I guess it was five years at South Carolina and then the COVID year at FSU who landed him because originally they had recruited him out of high school. I think he's from South Florida, and then that connection came home for FSU. I think he's got a chance, too, uh, at the next level. Now, he's not Jermaine, but he's a good football player. Well, he certainly took advantage of some opportunities, six and a half sacks in 12 games last season. And and you were accurate in terms of being at South Carolina for five seasons. Just look that up to absolutely confirm that. And he only had eight and a half sacks, by the way, in South Carolina, his tenure there. So to have six and a half in one year versus eight and a half says a lot about his potential upside and jump. I want to bring up one other player, Tom, who also is a transfer, but on the offensive side of the ball, who I also think has a chance to be drafted, and that's running back Deshaun Corbin. He, I believe, followed Jimbo Fisher to Texas A&M and then wanted to return a little bit closer to home. So he's been at Florida State each of the last two seasons. Seems as if he's been able to contribute in terms of the receiving game as well as get as many as 143 carries this past season. Where do you look at his usage on the next level in terms of being able to be in every down back because of his contributions as a receiver or more of an early down type of usage? Well, I don't know if I see him as a starter at the next level. I do see him as an NFL running back, uh, but he does catch the ball well. So I guess, you know, if I'm answering that way, it could, it could be every down. So you're right in what you said about he, he had committed to Jimbo Fisher when Jimbo was still at FSU, went to Texas A&M, had a bad injury at Texas A&M in his first or second year. I think it was an Achilles, not an ACL. I don't remember for sure, but when he got to FSU, uh, maybe it was a hamstring now. I'm sorry to be all over the map yeah, on that. You know, but, Tom, yeah, it was a hamstring. The, the yeah. research on that said, and it really made me hurt when I read it, something about the hamstring separated from the bone. I mean, it sounded really nasty. Yeah, as I talked it through, I was like, it was his hamstring. His first year at FSU, he didn't have a burst. And so he was he was a good quality back. Uh, I mean, Florida State has not had a lot of uh, – boy, it pains me to say it, but there's not been a lot of skill offensively of late at FSU. And so he stuck out in that regard, but he didn't have that extra gear. Then you get to his second year, and, and they, the coaches talked about it as soon as fall practice started, that, that that burst was back. And then we saw it in games that, you know, the opening night against Notre Dame, he broke one like 85 yards to the house past Kyle Hamilton and the, and the Notre Dame defenders. Um so that, that came back and formed. Basically, it took him two years to really recover all the way back from that injury. Now, he, too, 
from an intangible standpoint, just like Jermaine was uh, on the defensive side of the ball in terms of leading by example, uh, and this sort of speaks to the fact that FSU's culture had, had eroded to the point that, you know, transfers are coming in and they need them to, to set the work tempo and, and teach the other guys. Jay Sean did the same thing on the offensive side of the ball. He really was a, a good leader for the offense. Uh, had a knack for, uh, and Florida State's OL has not been very good of late, so short yardage has been, a, has been a struggle. But he was a guy who, even when there was nothing there, he would find a way he would fall forward. You know, it might only be a foot or two further forward, but there was no hole. And instead of losing a yard, he's getting a yard somehow, even with this frame. So, uh, and, he, and he caught the ball out of the backfield, as you mentioned, was your first question. So, he, he's got, I think he, you know, he's an NFL player. I don't know if he's a frontline NFL running back, but the way teams, you know, treat running backs now, you know, just go get somebody for a couple of years and then find somebody else, right? <laughs> Tom, I was intrigued about him as a possible third down back because, as you said, he's got hands. But the other key for all third down backs is that you got to be able to do pass protection. And I saw a willingness and, and a physicality to be able to do that. Yeah, and that's that's maybe, you know, you asked every down initially. I, I think you're right about that. I, I think he, he's, he certainly has a willingness. He has a good attitude. None of these uh, guys that we're talking about are, are prima donna types. They're they're willing to you know they're they're sweat equity guys, uh, and Corbin Corbin certainly is. So I, I think he could do that, and I think that is a place where you know he can make a catch, and then he's like I said, I, I'm not saying he'd be he's not going to be the fastest guy in the NFL or anything like that, but he's he's got a burst there that will help him. And uh, it was it was it wasn't night and day, but it was definitely noticeable his, his second year compared to his first that all of a sudden he had that extra year. Tom, Florida State has several other players. I think most of them are probably going to be projected to be undrafted and maybe catch on with a team in camp, but I want to at least give you the floor. Anyone else that you think has been maybe overlooked that could make some noise on the NFL level? Andrew Parchment, the wide receiver who's spent some time at a variety of schools or somebody else perhaps at a different position? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure Parchment will get to a camp. He was pretty inconsistent in his year at FSU, although ironically he had one of the biggest catches of the season uh, in, in a big fourth and – I think it was fourth and 22 that uh, he caught and FSU went on to beat Miami. That was in the closing minute. Um, I don't see him being a long-term NFL guy. The one who's really interesting to me is is uh, the quarterback, Mackenzie Milton, who had the horrific injury when he was at UCF. Uh, really smart guy. Did not have a great go of it at Florida State, and I think he, he just wasn't all the way back physically. And I don't know. And when I say that, I, I don't mean that they played him when he wasn't cleared to play. I mean that I don't know if it was nerve or what, but there were times when it was like he didn't have the strength in his leg, uh, or or his you know his mind was still there. He was reading the defense 100 percent correctly, but his body just couldn't catch up to what his mind was processing. So if that has improved i.e. If he's, if he's turned a little bit of a corner on, on some of that, uh, I'm kind of curious what becomes of him because he, he was not the quarterback at FSU that he was at UCF. That sounds obvious with the injury he had. Uh, you're talking about a guy that almost lost his leg, you know. Um, but he's a smart guy. He's been very uh, vocal and a leader uh, related to the, the name, image, likeness stuff, the NIL stuff that's dominating all the college football talk. And I say that in a good way. Um, but he's been out in front fighting for other student-athletes. So I, I do think he's a leader. Uh, and I would think somebody would bring him to camp, and maybe he ends up making a practice squad, and, and then you just see, you know, two years from now, does that turn into something? I'd, I'd be curious to see what that shakes out. 
like Yeah, especially since he'll be further removed from 2018 when he suffered that gruesome leg injury. So maybe it's just a little bit more time removed to get him back to that level before the injury at Central Florida. He is Tom Block, Florida State radio host and sideline reporter. Tom, can't thank you enough. Greatly appreciate the time of the inside and look forward to talking down the road. Thanks for hopping on with us. Great stuff, Tom. Yep. All right, take care, guys. Thank you. You as well. So Tom weighing in on the Florida State prospects, and there's a little bit more beyond Jermaine Johnson, as we discussed, but clearly Jermaine Johnson is the player to watch. And Paul, as you referenced, he's been on quite the rise over the last few months during the course of this draft process. And we've seen guys before, all of a sudden, you know, they're not necessarily projected to go that high, and then they make a name for themselves with their workouts and the senior bowl. And then just like that, they go in the top 10. So it wouldn't be unusual if Johnson is the latest guy to really skyrocket after just one unbelievable season at Florida State. Well, I mean, look, we've been tracking this whole thing now for a few months. We kind of knew that in December the Giants were going to have a high first-round pick and probably two because we knew they had the Chicago pick as well. So the monitor or the radar has been out on the potential to have two top 10 picks. And initially, I don't ever remember him being in those conversations back in December. I just don't. And then all of a sudden January came along and you started hearing maybe fringe. Every once in a while somebody would mention him. And then by the time you got to February, that name started to become commonplace. So I, I would say based on just a total uh, outside periphery look, I'm not I'm not as in-depth as the draft, uh, draft gurus are every day because that's what they do for a living. I'd have to say he's probably the, the highest and fastest first-round riser in this draft. Can you think of somebody else? No, I think that's a fitting label for him, but I think he's deserving of it based on what he's put on tape and how he's produced. I'm certainly intrigued by Jermaine Johnson. He's one of the guys that I've certainly circled that I'm keeping close tabs of outside this draft class and what he could do in the NFL level because I do think he's got those intangibles that – make him extremely promising. It's just, once again, will he be utilized, right? Because one thing we didn't really delve into much with Tom, he scratched the surface of this. I think it wasn't so much the lack of playing time at Georgia. Georgia also had him as a stand-up linebacker. So I think if you talk to Jermaine, I haven't heard him say this on the record, but I think another part of the reason why he's been able to flourish at Florida State is they used him down on the line, where it's more of his comfort level. And that sometimes is the difference between a guy all of a sudden tapping into his potential. So I think that was the huge difference maker from this past season. Yeah, yeah, I think that was part of it, no doubt. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. We're going to squeeze in a few phone calls. Just a few reminders, though. First, Giant season tickets are on sale now for the 2022 season. In addition to ticket savings, membership benefits include access to exclusive events, experiences, pre-sales, and more. You can lock in your seats starting at just $100. Call 888-NYG-1925, or you can visit Giants.com slash tickets for more information. Also, don't miss your chance to experience a premier hospitality experience watching Giants games and world-class concerts also in 2022 as a giant suite partner limited full season locations are available you can place a deposit for individual games call 888-NYG-1925 or you can visit giants.com slash suites for more information let's reopen up the phone lines Mike is in Atlanta and he joins us what's happening Mike hi guys how are you hi all right what do you got for us uh a realistic scenario which I think is coming into play now that we're getting closer to the draft uh, and I wanted to get your opinion on it. So 
looking at the top four picks, let's say, for example, the top four picks are all defensive players, the, the three defensive ends, and take your pick of Sauce and Hamilton. So the Giants are sitting there at five with all three tackles available to them. Now, this is a really unique draft year where you have four teams below the Giants sitting on two first-round picks. So if you have the three tackles there, you're going to be guaranteed to come away with one at five or seven. Like you say, Paul, let's pick your flavor. So with that in mind, you have the Eagles at 15-18. You have the Saints at 16-19. and The Packers at 22-28. and The Chiefs at 29-30. and If you had to pick a tackle and make a trade with the other pick, either five or seven, which one of those deals would you take for this year, taking the two first-round picks in exchange for five or seven? Well, see, that's counterproductive for me because I think the only logic for me to make a deal is to get a number one for next year. I don't want two extra first-round picks this year. That, that doesn't work for me. And, 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 also, and, and as far yeah. as the player goes, Iquanu is my guy. I've made that clear since January. He's my guy. I want him over Neal and over Cross. Now, I'd have no problem with either guy because they're better than consolation prizes. Let me make that clear, too. If the Giants get Neal or Cross, I'm still having a pizza party. But Iquanu, I'm putting meatballs and extra cheese on that pizza. <laughs> well, he also has the flexibility of guard and tackle, which I think adds a little bit more value to him than perhaps some of the other guys. And when you look at the Giants' needs right now to have somebody that could go inside or outside, I think that would be extremely beneficial. The other thing is, based on your hypothetical, Mike, is just because those teams have a few extra first-rounders doesn't mean that they have any interest in moving up. They may be content in saying, hey, you know, we're going to get two guys who are in the top 25 in the NFL draft, and we've positioned ourselves to do that. No, I know, but the Packers and Chiefs are win-now teams. And, yeah, but know, I think if Green Bay if Green Bay wants a wide receiver, let's just look at it from that standpoint, Green Bay, to me, does not have to move. Green Bay will be able to get a wide receiver where they currently sit. If that's what their goal is, based on Devontae Adams leaving and maybe having some question marks with what's left, I don't think they need to make a move. Why would you move up to grab a wide receiver when you could get him if you stay packed? Just It, it doesn't make any sense. And Kansas City already brought in wide receivers to replace Tyreek Hill, and they could also grab a wide receiver if they wanted to in the draft. I really don't think any of that warrants a move, I guess is what I'm saying. I will tell you, though, that Lance, I will tell you this. The whispers that I have from behind the curtain around the league is that Kansas City does want to trade up to get a wide receiver. Okay. I mean, listen, that may be their prerogative, but I don't think they need to if they truly still want a difference maker. I think they're perfectly fine where they are, and I think they will get them. So, I mean, that depends on if maybe they just love one wide receiver in particular. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably the case. And yeah, appreciate see, the, for me, yeah. Paul, for me, Paul, I understand what you're saying, but the way I'm looking at this is if the Giants have their choice of tackles, all three are there. You could trade down either the fifth or seventh pick with the Packers or the Chiefs. Then you're getting into that strength of the draft where you can either come away with Zion Johnson or Green mm-hmm. to fill one of the guard spots. And you know and I love those two guys. I'm big on both of them. You're absolutely right. Green is the Iquanu of the guards. Spot. I'm with you there. And that's the sweet spot. The other thing I'm looking at, I'm already looking at ahead to next year where 
if it was me, the guy I want out of this draft is Tibbs. But the guy I'm already looking forward to next year, hopefully the Giants have a crack at him, is Will Anderson. This guy's going to be really special right. next year. And I'll take my, the rest of your call to you. All right. Well, appreciate the phone call. I'm not really focusing on the 2023 draft. I want to get through 2022 before I even start speculating. And the other problem is guy gets hurt in the 2022 season, and then all of a sudden his stock falls. So it's extremely premature to even go down that road. So that is going to wrap things up for us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. We'll be up and running again on Tuesday at noon Eastern. A reminder that today's episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live is part of the Giants platforms everywhere and Giants.com slash podcast. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadows. Stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest, and we'll speak to you on Tuesday right here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Have a good one.